Let's pray together. God, we do praise your name. Recognize your greatness over all. That you are King of kings and Lord of lords. I do pray tonight we would be gripped by the gravity of Jude's warnings, of his commands, of his calls to action. And God, that we would be changed. Uh, We would be affected by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. That they would come home to us tonight, Lord. And that we would be changed, you would be glorified, and God, our churches would be strengthened. We want to see our churches thrive, Lord, and grow, be growing in grace and faith and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaiming the gospel. God, so I just pray you'd use the messages tonight to protect us from uh, the apostates and their, their encroachment uh, in the church. God, now give us wisdom, give us eyes to see, and Lord, affect our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight is the book of Jude. If you'll open there, I'm going to begin in verse 17. It's uh, been a joy to be here, to listen last night, and to preach tonight and listen tonight as well. Uh, it's, it's a joy because some of the things I was going to say, the other two guys said last night. So that's helpful to me. That opens me up to say other things that hopefully will be profitable. Jude, beginning in verse 17. What Jude does in this letter is he backloads the commands to Christians to the end. Essentially, he he tells you why he wrote his letter, so that we would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, because these false teachers have crept into the church. That's how he begins. And then he gives you this lengthy discussion, uh, essentially attack on how terrible the false teachers are. Are. That's what Charlie covered last night for us. And then he gets to, okay, in the, the context of these false teachers, uh, where the church is being inundated by apostates, this is what you should do. And again, as Chase pointed out, this is a, this is a call to, to congregations. This is a, a call for the body to be at work. This isn't just merely the work of, of pastors or some people in the church. This is a call for all of us. And that's what Jude now gets to beginning in verse 17 where he transitions from talking about them, where he's been talking about they and how bad they are and what they've done and what they're like, And now he transitions to you, Christians, beginning in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Rosaria Butterfield was an English professor at Syracuse University, and she began reading the Bible. She was well-known because she taught queer theory. She was an advocate for LGBT rights. And when she began studying the Bible, the dean of the chapel of Syracuse University came to her to confront her because he had gotten wind that she had been dabbling in Christianity. And he came to her and he made the argument to her that none of the Old Testament is relevant, that all of the ethical claims of the Old Testament need to be thrown out, 
and that you can read the New Testament and make it mean anything you want it to mean. Well, I mean, she was an English professor, so she was totally aware of that kind of thinking. And one of the things she said in reflecting on, on his critique of the Bible was she said he seemed to be interpreting the Bible for convenience, to make it appeal to her and her lifestyle, rather than allowing the text of the Old Testament to say what it actually says. And that was one of the things that, that pointed out to her an inconsistency in the way this person was handling the Bible. She went on to say this, quote, I was puzzled that the chapel dean seemed to have such little understanding of the book that he had studied longer than I did. This points out one of the problems Jude is addressing. It's the problem of apostasy. See, Syracuse University, like a lot of American universities, has Christian roots. It was actually founded by Wesleyans in the 1800s, the late 1800s. That's why they have a chapel. This chapel dean obviously, though, rejects the Bible, doesn't believe the Scripture. In fact, it was later that the, 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 the president of Mercer University, Mercer University founded by Baptists, once the second largest Southern Baptist school in the South, the president of Mercer University says, Jesus did not die for our sins. You do not have to repent to be saved. How are there people that are claiming to be Christians saying things so clearly contrary to the word of God? It's because of the reality of apostasy. So I'm going to use the word apostasy and the word apostate a lot tonight. So let me define it for you. When I say apostasy, I'm referring, or an apostate, I'm referring to someone who is in the church, someone who claims to be a Christian but denies the faith. Someone who denies the truth of the gospel. John Owen defined apostasy as defection from the truth, defection from the gospel. And that's what we see here that Jude is addressing human mind. These are people in the church... They've crept in unawares. They're taking the Lord's Supper with God's people. They are apostates. And Jude is writing to them and then to us on how to respond to that. How do you respond to apostasy in the church? Well, the first way Jude says we should respond to it is to expect apostasy. We should expect it. Look what he says in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first call to action is to remember. It's to remember. To remember. And what are you supposed to remember? The predictions of the apostles. What the apostles have said beforehand. What is written down by the apostles. And then he goes on to quote Second Peter. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. But notice he says this is the prediction of the apostles, plural. So it's not just Peter that said this. And as we saw last night, if you look at your New Testament, all through the New Testament... There are predictions and warnings to Christians in the church about the encroachment of false teachers. In fact, in your New Testament, you have entire books written about false teachers and how to address them. That's why we have the book of Jude. This is a serious matter. It's a matter of grave responsibility for the church to expect apostasy. Now, apostasy, the fact that there are people that claim to be Christians, people in the church that actually deny the Lord and deny the truth of the Word of God, that's shocking. And it's galling. And to to pastors like these guys in this room, it's utterly frustrating. It's really maddening. We should expect it. We should expect it. That's That's what Jude says here. As Christians, you shouldn't be surprised by this. As bad as they are, that shouldn't surprise you. Why? Because this is what the Word of God says is going to happen. And this is what 
has happened. I mean, don't you just shake your head at how many people are Mormons? And how many people throughout history have followed Joseph Smith? And you just do a a bit of basic study on what Joseph Smith taught and believed and how he lived? I mean, it's just astounding that millions of people are following the false prophet. Incidentally, if you go to a Mormon meeting place where they have their gatherings and you pick up the Mormon hymnal, there is a hymn in the Mormon hymnal called Praise to the Man. Praise to the Man. I'm serious. They love singing Praise to the Man. They're praising Joseph Smith. What could lead people who read the Bible to do such a thing? Doesn't it just make you shake your head? Or Paul Crouch, the president of Trinity Broadcasting Network. I mean... It's millions of Christians are watching that around the world. There are, there are people who believe the gospel that are watching Paul Crouch. Listen to what he said. Quote, I am a little God. I have his name. I am a little God. Critics be gone. Paul Crouch. TV show. Who would watch that? It's astounding, though, that, 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 a, that apostasy is everywhere. But again, like we see in the scripture, like Jude says, we should expect that. It is, the reality is, again, even though it's shocking and frustrating, it's the norm for the life of the church. This is the norm, like what Charlie was saying last night. Some of the, the, the difficulties and frustrations we're dealing with in Baptist life, is, this is the norm. It's the norm since the days of the apostles. The apostles were engaged in combat with false teachers. Then shortly after them, you see Timothy. The letter's written to Timothy while Paul is still alive. What's going on in Ephesus where Timothy's pastor? False teachers. Same thing for Titus where he's starting churches in Crete. False teachers inundating the church. Book of Acts, Paul warns about the coming of the wolves that will devour the flock. Then you look at church history in the early church. I mean, if you study the early church, you know one of the main things you study if you study the early church? Heresy. These infamous heresies. And you know what's happened? Essentially, you get all these bizarre heresies that come out in about the first 300 years of the church. And then you know what happens? All through the rest of the years of the church, they just mutate. They're augmented, they're changed, but they're still the same denials of Christ, different gospels. And they just continue on to this day. And now television and the internet has just simply weaponized them and enabled them to travel even further and with greater ease. And then you go up through the dark ages... And in the Dark Ages, you have the ascendancy of the Roman Catholic Church. And you, you just study the immorality of the papacy during the, during the Dark Ages. It's quite revealing, let alone their denial of the gospel. And then in the, Refor- the Reformation, the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they're lamenting all the false teachers in their day, kind of riding in the coattails of the Reformation and the gospel. There's false teachers. Then in Puritan England, which is one of my favorites, Puritan England is utterly divided. It is full of infighting. Listen to what John Owen says. Because, I mean, at a conference like this, we've got to have at least one Puritan quote. It's a must. Listen to what Owen says about his day. The state of religion is at this day deplorable in most parts of the Christian world. That is acknowledged by all who concern themselves in anything that is so-called. And then you think about Baptists. Think about Baptists. We're not going to spend a lot of time on where we are now. But my goodness, so many heresies and false teachers and apostates have come from the ranks of Baptists, like Alexander Campbell. There's there's many. And friends, I'm just saying what Jude says, just expect that. 
Why do you expect it? Because you remember the prediction of the apostles. You remember the word of God. This is what the word of God says. Again, it's frustrating, it's angering, it's enraging, but just expect it. Look what he goes on to say as he describes them. Verse 19. It is these who cause divisions. I'm sorry, verse 18. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They're scoffers. They're still scoffers today. This isn't a person just merely asking questions about the faith. This is a person inside the church scoffing at true doctrine. Friends, if you're a, if you're a, a Baptist who believes in sola scriptura, which to me is the foundation of the faith, where you believe the scripture is your authority, it is your directive, you will be scoffed at by others in your ranks. I know I've experienced it quite regularly. They're scoffers. Not only that. Look what he goes on to say. Following their own ungodly passions. Four times Jude calls them ungodly. They are anti-God. They are in rebellion against God. And these are, notice, ungodly passions or lusts. This is, again, the dead giveaway for the false teacher, which Jude over and over again addresses in this letter, their their sensuality. And, And again, if you just study the false teachers all through history, just look at the life of a cult leader, like a David Koresh. I mean, they leave a, in their wake, illicit relationships left and right. It's just a mark of false teachers and apostates. Those who worm their way into the church, but yet deny the Lord and Master. They take His grace and they turn it into perversion. They use it as as an excuse for sin. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. Now, cause divisions there is an interesting word. It appears only here in the New Testament. It literally means that they separate themselves. They separate themselves. Now, certainly false teachers cause divisions. You can find that, I believe, in Romans 16. This is a bit different. This is what I think you see in the Pharisees. The word Pharisee, if you look up that word, it derives from a word that means to be separate. They view themselves as different than others. They love preeminence. That they, these are the kind of people they like the best seats. They like to be recognized. Notice what Jude said back in, at the end of verse 16. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. They cause unnatural, ungodly divisions among people. Namely, to elevate themselves. To show favoritism to those who will follow them and listen to them. They cause divisions. They're worldly people. They're worldly people. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, when Paul says natural person, that's the exact same word Jude uses here for worldly. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, look what Jude goes on to say in describing them. They are devoid of the Spirit. A person who is devoid of the Spirit is not a Christian. They do not have the Spirit of God within them. They are worldly. They are fleshly. They are human soul. The, the word therefore worldly is actually the word soulish. Soulish. They're characterized by this world, not by the Spirit of God. So, in Jude calling us to respond to apostasy, first of all, he says we should expect it. You should expect apostasy. Secondly, he says you should equip yourself because of apostasy. You should equip yourself because of apostasy. And here we come to to his admonitions. Verse 20, but you, beloved, notice the contrast. Instead of what they're like, 
But you, beloved, Jude loves to call his audience beloved. He loves to call Christians those who are loved by God. By the way, just take a minute. Just take a minute and reflect on what it means to be beloved by God. Ephesians 1, you've been accepted into the beloved. That is amazing, isn't it? Well, Jude likes to highlight that. But you, beloved, in contrast to them, look what he says. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And here's our first verb, building yourselves up. As we equip ourselves, notice we're to be building ourselves up. What do we build ourselves up in? Your most holy faith. This harkens back to verse 3, where we're called to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is a Christian to do in in light of the, the encroaching apostates? Build yourself up. Build yourself up in the faith, the most holy faith. And notice there's only one faith. It has been delivered once for all to the saints. That's what you're supposed to build yourself up in. Well, how do you do that? Well, by studying it, by learning it, by giving yourself to the things that allow you to learn it and allow you and bring about your building up in it. Like listening to preaching, coming to church, being around Christians. Let's just focus tonight on reading the Bible, studying the Bible. Praying the Bible, meditating on the Bible. I mean, where are you going to learn the predictions of the apostles from? The Word of God. This is how you're going to, this is how you're going to train yourself for discernment. The Word of God. You become so familiar with the truth that when a counterfeit arises, you recognize it for what it is. When someone speaks falsehood, you are so acquainted with the truth that you are able to easily recognize it. You build yourself up. One of the amazing things about Jude is... This is one of the best books to go to, to study what he says about Christians for assurance in the faith. Where you are kept by God, where you are beloved by God. It's just just astounding. Where you are guarded by God. It's this this, uh, doxology that's coming up. He guards you. He's guarding you. It's just amazing. But here in this text that I'm looking at is the call to action. Friends, we know in sanctification, God saves us. It's His work. His work is primary. We love Him because He first loved us. But that does not diminish the essential place of determination in the Christian life. And that's what we're talking about here. You want to to face and be ready for the danger, the grave danger of apostasy in the church, you've got to build yourself up. It's a call not to passivity, but to activity. Building yourself up in the faith. Working. Seeking, pursuing, desiring, loving, studying, praying, fasting. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Next verb, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's how you equip yourself. You build yourself up and you're praying in the the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? You'll find this phrase also in the armor of God passage, Ephesians 6. Praying with all prayer. Praying with all prayer in the Spirit. What does that mean? How do you pray in the Spirit? Well, if you're a Christian, if you have the Spirit, you do pray in the Spirit. What I think Jude means here is, in contrast to those who, in verse 19, notice what he says about them. They are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have Him. He is not indwelling them. He is not filling them. In contrast to being devoid of the Spirit, you as a Christian, you're praying. You're not just praying. You're not just mouthing words. You're praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. I think Paul says something about this in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Notice this is the Spirit's praying. That those of us who are Christians, every one of us has the Spirit. 
And the spirit within us prays for us. Verse 27, he who searches hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Where they are devoid of the spirit, Christians pray in the spirit. This also could just very simply mean similar to what is meant by praying in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in accord with all of who Jesus is in accord with his will. Pray in the spirit is to pray in accord with the will of the spirit. That he is with you. You're not alone when you pray. We are praying in the Spirit. Notice these verbs are ing words. They are continual actions. We are building ourselves up. We are praying in the Spirit. And then we come next to the main verb. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I say this is the main verb because this verb is actually an imperative. It's a command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, one of the, the interesting things about this is, if you go back to Jude 1, where he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He introduces the letter by saying, you as a Christian, the, 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 the believers he's writing to, you're kept by God. Amazing. Then what does he say here? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And again, the two are not contradictory. In fact, they're quite complementary. You're kept by God, by his power. That doesn't diminish the the call to action to keep yourself in the love of God. So the question is, okay, how do you do that? Incidentally, I kind of wanted this to mean when I was first studying the text. Well, this means, you know, keep yourself in your loving of God. But I don't think that's what it means. Because if you study love of God almost every time, it means God's love for you. This is an odd command to keep yourself in that sphere. Well, how do you do that? I think the answer is, is here in this text. The way you keep yourself in the love of God, and this is where understanding the command is important. This is a command. It's an imperative verb. Keep yourself in the love of God. And then it's surrounded by three ing words, which are building yourself up, praying in the Spirit, and then the next one we're going to look at, waiting for the mercy of Christ. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. You're building yourself up. You do that, you're keeping yourself in this sphere of God's love. You're praying in the Spirit. You're, 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 you're keeping yourself in the love of God. And you are waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking for Him with an, an, an anticipating hope. You're keeping yourself in the love of God. Jude focuses throughout his letter on God's love for us. Here he calls us to keep ourselves in God's love. Then he goes on to the next call. Here's how we equip ourselves in these days of apostasy. Waiting. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I think this is future mercy that Jesus will bring about at the culmination of our salvation that will take place at his return. That's what we're waiting on. We're waiting for that. And friends, isn't that an encouragement? Again, the, 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 you, we, we pastors and especially uh, complainers like me will lament about the state of the church until the cows come home. But the reality is there's incredible hope. And in the reality of apostasy that we see on TV, if you want to look for it every day, our hope is in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that mercy. That's where our hope is. That's what we're waiting for. That's an energizing and an encouraging hope when you're dealing with days of apostasy. So we are waiting for the mercy of God. Notice that's future. And notice what the mercy of God here is that we're waiting for. Eternal life. Eternal life. What an amazing promise and reality that we are waiting for. It's eternal life that will be culminated for us at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is one of the, the differences in false teachers and, and in the hopes that we embrace. False teachers offer false hopes. For instance, two of the, the most prominent. False teachers often op- offer the hope of physical healing. I offer this hope of physical healing. And, and obviously, we, would, we want to see people who are sick physically healed. And we know God can do that. I think if someone's sick in our family or someone we know in our church is sick, we should pray earnestly for them. But, but false teachers use it as a way to peddle their false teachings, offering the hope of physical healing in this life. Now think about how transient that is. I don't mean to diminish sicknesses and the pains of this life, but sadly the reality of this fallen world in which we live in, this cursed world which groans, is anticipating the return of Christ. I mean, my goodness, in this life, yeah, you get healed, but then you die. You get healed and then you still go through the pains and difficulties of old age. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and in future grace and mercy that he'll bring. The other false hope that a lot of false teachers use to snag people is the the hope of temporal riches. Such a false hope. Hope that many of us would would desire in this life. We we know why those things are appealing. We can understand why physical healing is appealing. This is why they they use those things. They, They appeal to the desires of people. It's one of the reasons they become so popular. But friends, as as the Christian, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the future with Him. We're waiting on that. We're waiting on eternal life. So, to respond to apostates, number one, we expect them. It's not a surprise. This is what God's Word says. Number two, we equip ourselves. We prepare ourselves. We equip ourselves to deal with apostasy. We equip ourselves because of apostasy. And number three, and finally, we engage those who have been affected by apostasy. We engage those who have been affected by apostates. The question last night about false teachers is important. Usually the New Testament is addressing those who are actively denying the faith, leading people astray, and teaching false gospels and false doctrines. But here's what happens. They affect other people. In fact, the scripture says they upset whole households, especially the ones that are convincing and usually charismatic, meaning they're likable or good speakers. They affect other people. And they affect other people in a tragic way. And this is where we come in as the body. This is where we must come in. This is where we, go to act, we, we take action. And Jude calls us to action here. Look what he says. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Now what he's going to do is he's going to identify three groups here and three ways to, to go after those who have been affected by the apostates. And, and as we move through these three groups, there's an escalating of danger. And they're to be treated differently. First is the, 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 the doubters. He, he begins by saying, have mercy on those who doubt. Some who are affected by false teaching, faith deniers, false gospelers, they, they doubt the, the truth. You've been, they've learned the gospel. They've learned the word of God. They've embraced Jesus. But then here comes a, 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 a convincing speaker who shows them something in the Bible, right? Like Mark 16, what it says about baptism there or handling snakes, right? And, and they become convinced of some bizarre heresy. Well, and they doubt what they've been taught. They doubt what they've believed. I mean, this is, this is normal. I think it's normal for every Christian probably at some point in their life to doubt. I, I doubt my salvation at times. 
I think this is part of the normal experience of being a a fallen human being. Friends, by the way, when I doubt my salvation, I think when we do, what we do is we go to the Word of God for confirmation. We go to the Word of God and see what God says. We go to 1 John 5, 1. He who is believing that Jesus is the Son of God has been born again. So am I believing that Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah, I am. Okay. It's evidence I've been born again. Doubt. Doubt dealt with. Move on to the next. But friends, there are people that doubt. I mean, if our kids come to us with doubts, we don't rebuke them, right? Now we want to deal with that doubt with mercy. Incidentally, these, and you're going to see the command to have mercy twice here. This is a, a, a great balancing for what we've seen earlier in the letter where he, he calls us to contend earnestly. So yes, we contend, but there's also for those affected by apostasy, there's mercy that is shown. And here's a balance for us all to take note of. We show mercy to those who doubt. False teachers, apostates, lead others to doubt. Look at the next group, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Notice the command there is to save them. They're in grave danger. Now again, now now here is one of the reasons why false teaching and apostates in the church are not to be trifled with. And we as Christians must take this seriously. And you have got to be willing and ready to go on a rescue mission to save someone who has been affected by a false teacher. Because look at the result. You save them from fire. You save them from fire. I wonder what that reference to fire could be talking about. Well, if you study fire in the Bible, it's almost always the judgment of God. Finally culminating in hell, the lake of fire. So we are are on a rescue mission. So notice what these apostates bring about. They're not leading people to green pastures. They're leading people to hell. And we, the church, have got to take action to snatch them out of the fire. And friends, again, it's the body's work to do this. We snatch them out of the fire. Look at the next group. And again, the danger escalates here. To others, show mercy. There's another command, show mercy. But this time it's with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So this group is, from our perspective, the most dangerous to engage. We still should engage them, but we've got to use much greater care. We engage this group again with mercy. But mercy, notice, in fear. This is mercy in fear, and I think it's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. That the fear of God, recognizing God's greatness, God's power, God's goodness, God's majesty, God's judgment, restrains me from sin. So I approach a person who's been affected by an apostate and a false teacher with fear. Because I I know that I've got to beware lest I fall. I mean, we don't think we're invincible from temptation, do we? We had better not. So we show mercy with fear. We fear God. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Hating. Now, that's strong, isn't it? There's a strong emotion for you. Hating even the garments stained with flesh. What is he talking about there? Now, this is a graphic image. It's a graphic image that they would have understood immediately that's a little harder for us to get because we're a little bit removed from their world. The, the garment stained with the flesh was essentially an undergarment they would wear under their clothing. It's kind of like what we would think of as underwear. Underwear. And literally, the garment stained by flesh is probably human excrement. That's probably what this is a reference to. 
Well, and that's not hard to hate, is it? That's probably why this image is used. And it also continues to depict how deplorable and wretched is the effect of false teaching. This is the garment stained by flesh. And you should hate that. It's like Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. That as a believer, part of our disposition toward evil is hatred. We hate it. So notice again this balance. We show mercy to those who have been affected. But we still hate the sin. We hate it. We hate it what it's done. We hate the fact that it could affect us. Psalm 97.10 says, Christians, you who love the Lord hate evil. Christians should hate evil. Hatred again protects us from falling prey to temptation. You see how this strong emotion of hatred can protect us from falling prey to temptation? It's similar to Galatians 6.1, this rescue mission. Listen to what it says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. None of us are above that. And as calling, in calling all of the church, all of God's people to go on this kind of a rescue mission, we do it in fear, hating the garments stained by flesh, because we recognize the power and the corrupting influence of sin. And any of us can be affected. And we know that. Sin has a corrupting influence. Like, for instance, if you have a white glove and you take that white glove and you drop it into mud, the mud does not get glovey, does it? That engaging people who have been affected by apostates, gospel deniers, our Lord's haters, if you come close to a fire, you can get burned. If you get too close to a whirlpool, you might get sucked in. We've got to... We've got to engage them with fear, hating the garments stained with flesh. One of my favorite and uh, potent image of temptation that often comes to my mind is uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia, where the, 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 the evil antagonist in the story is, is like this ice queen. And she keeps Narnia in this frozen state, and she's utterly evil, and she's an oppressor, and she's wicked. And she rides around in this big sleigh. And then, then there's the children of Adam, the, the, kind of the good guys. And one of the good guys, one of the younger boys, his name's Edmund. And he encounters the white queen, the, the ice queen out in the woods. And she entices him to get into her sleigh. And she's very cunning. And this is, this is, why, this is why temptation is powerful, because you, you want to give into it. I mean, it promises pleasure. And she offers him a dessert. She offers him Turkish delight. And I mean, it looks so good. And I get to ride in the sleigh. I mean, what? Son of Adam wouldn't want to do that. And she gives him this Turkish delight, and he's climbing up in there, and, and pretty soon he's sitting in the seat of the scoffers. But now just think, think for a minute. If she would have called to Edmund and said, Edmund, or Evans, I have some, I have some nice dirty underwear here for you to chew on. How about you come and chew on some of this dirty underwear? That would have been revolting, wouldn't it have? That's hating the garment stained by flesh. That's hating the garment stained by flesh. We need to see sin for what it is. It's not a dessert. It's a garment stained by flesh. Let me just finish by telling you what led up to Rosaria Butterfield's conversion. It was, it was an engagement like this. That Christians had mocked her. She had been on these 
gay pride marches and Christians had mocked her. And that, that stuck out in her mind so she wanted to study Christianity so she could attack it more eloquently. And there was a pastor who wrote her a letter and it struck her that he was not mocking her, that he actually wanted to engage her and talk with her. And so she decided, well, I'll use this as an opportunity for my research. And so she developed a relationship with this man and his wife and became their friends and got to know them. And and ultimately she started reading the Bible and she was converted because this pastor was gracious enough to reach out to her and engage her. That led to her conversion. Friends, in the reality and sad, deplorable state of apostasy, we need to expect it. We need to equip ourselves and be diligent because of it. And we need to engage those who have been affected by it. Let's pray together. And God, may you give us strength to do that. I do pray our hearts would be set to be steadfast, resolute, determined to be faithful, to grow in the faith once for all delivered in the saints, the most holy faith. God, to be equipped, to equip ourselves. I pray you'd use our churches to equip our flocks, God, uh, to beware apostates and apostasy, and God, to rescue those who have been affected by it, and they are many. So God, help us to engage them for your glory and use us, God, to turn many from darkness to light in Jesus' name.